The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Let me invite you to open your copy of God's Word to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 5, 1 Corinthians 5, and we're going to look, Lord willing, today at verses 1 through 5. Now, you need to know this morning as you're turning there that uh, I always stand before the Word of God. When I come before you to preach the Word of God, uh, I always stand in fear and trembling. Today, I am particularly standing in fear and trembling because of the topic, yes, but also because of how epidemic the misunderstanding about this topic is, not only in America, but among the members of churches all across this land. This particular issue is robbing families of husbands and fathers. Robbing families of mothers and wives. It's robbing families of the innocence of, there's no such thing as innocence, but the innocence of their children and their teenagers. And we can stick our heads in the sand and ignore it because we're too embarrassed to talk about it. Or we can come out openly and, and just follow the Word of God. I, I'll, many of you know this, but if you're new here, our philosophy of preaching is that we take books of the Bible and we walk through those books verse by verse. And I've been saying from the beginning when I started 1 Corinthians that this book made me shake, made me tremble, because I knew there were some things in here that could potentially get me in trouble. Well, this is the passage that sort of starts that section, okay? Um, I don't intend to be crude or vulgar or, or insensitive but I want to unleash the lion of the Word of God. I heard a coach recently say, and I don't know who it's original with, but I heard a coach say that coaching is making players do what they don't want to do in order to become what they desperately want to become. Well, the Word of God is our coach. And the Word of God pushes us into areas that we wouldn't normally go. I wouldn't normally just pick this topic and preach to you on this. But I've made a commitment to preach the Word of God to you verse by verse, and so here we are. And so let me begin by reading this, and then I want us to pray. I always pray coming into the pulpit, and, and, um, but I want us to pray at the outset asking God to really do what God wants to do through this passage together. But let's, let's read this together. 1 Corinthians 5, verse, starting in verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Let's pray together. God, we need your word. God, we need your word to to be spoken to us in all of the truth. God, we need to hear the truth, not just with our ears to be shut down by our minds. God, we need to hear the truth of your word to be fully received in our minds so that we might be transformed by the renewing of our minds. So God, would you speak today? 
Would you keep this room free of distraction? God, would you help us today to receive the truth of the gospel as it applies even to this this topic? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing I want to say to you this morning is that sex is not a dirty word. It was not merely the report of sex among the church at Corinth that prompted Paul to write this letter. Um, But it was sexual immorality. Not just sex, but sexual immorality. Paul wouldn't have been, uh, he wouldn't have been alarmed if he had heard that there was a report that, that there was sex among the members of the church because he would have assumed that married couples were having sex. In fact, if he would have heard that married couples weren't having sex, that might have prompted another letter. But it wasn't just the report of sex. For too long in the church, we've remained silent. As I've already spoken, we've stuck our heads in the sand and we've ignored it because we are too embarrassed to talk about this issue. And when we have in in history spoke about this topic of sex, we've done so in a way only to deal with it from the aspect or from the side of shame and guilt. We've talked about premarital sex and extramarital affairs and homosexuality, but we fail to see that sex in itself is a gift from God. We've done things like true love waits. We've done things like promise keepers. But those things deal with the issue of sex from a surface level, attempting to put a Band-Aid on what's really at the heart of this, sinful, wicked hearts that twist the gifts of God for self-gratification. And meanwhile, while we have ignored this for years growing up in church, the world at every turn celebrates it. Almost every voice out there that you will hear outside the church talks about sex openly. They put it before us regularly. They glamorize it and they sell it as something that it's not and it was never meant to be. We see this in movies like Magic Mike, TV shows like Two and a Half Men, music like Locked Out of Heaven by Bruno Mars, novels like Fifty Shades of Grey. Everywhere we turn, Sex is talked about and celebrated almost as if it is the supreme human virtue. And all the while, the church sits silent, wondering why children and teenagers and families are stolen and destroyed every single day. So what's the truth? The truth is that sex is not bad and it's not dirty. You need to hear this. It's a gift from God both for procreation and also for pleasure. Tim Keller, in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, writes, Biblical Christianity may be the most body-positive religion in the world. It teaches that God made matter in physical bodies and saw that it was all good. It says that in Jesus Christ himself, he actually took on a human body and that someday he is going to give all of us a perfected, resurrected body. It says that God created sexuality and gave a woman to a man to each other in the beginning. The Bible contains great love poetry that celebrates sexual passion and pleasure. If anyone says that sex is bad or dirty in itself, then we have the entire Bible to contradict their opinion. You look at passages like what we'll come to in a, in a few weeks, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 3 through 5, where God commands, commands a husband and a wife to have sex. 
Proverbs 5.19, where God tells a husband to be intoxicated with his wife's body. Song of Solomon, an entire book in the Bible that is a, an erotic love tale between a husband and a wife. If this were the case, if sex were, were bad and dirty and evil, then why would God go to such great lengths to instruct it? In fact, the Bible is a very uncomfortable book for the prudish. Young people, you need to hear this. We all need to hear this because many of us are feeling guilty because of the urges that we have. You sit out there today and you're uncomfortable. You sit in silence. You're hanging on every single word that I say because not because you're not wanting me to slip up, but you are interested because you know in your heart that this plagues you and you feel guilty for the urges that you have. And ages, ages no, no matter. Sex is no matter. Gender is no matter. Many of you wind up chasing after all sorts of people and experiences that promise to make you happy and to satisfy you, but they never do. Instant gratification, yes, maybe. But deep, longing, lasting satisfaction, never. Many of those experiences are fun and pleasurable for the moment, but they, in an instant, leave you feeling guilty and ashamed. Some of you are struggling with sexual identity because you feel like that there's something wrong with you. You say things like, well, if, if there's not something wrong with me, then why am I like I am? I know I shouldn't feel this way, but I, I just can't help it. And the world will tell you, songwriters will write songs to tell you that you should just embrace this. This is how you were born. You were made this way. The truth is God has made you as a sexual creature, but sin has perverted that design. Sex is not bad. Sex is a gift from God. Sex is not a dirty word. However, there is right and wrong. This is where we must be clear. There is right and wrong. Sex itself is not bad, but there are ways that it is expressed in our culture that is right and wrong. We can't be afraid to, to say this, to stand on those. He says here in verse 1, it's reported that there is sexual immorality. The very notion that there is immorality means that there are some things that are immoral and some things that are moral. In order for that to be true, then there has to be a standard. There has to be a right and a wrong that is always right and always wrong in every situation. And in order for that to be true, there must be someone who sets those standards. And that one is God. It's not our prerogative to say for us what is right and what is wrong. The creation can't turn to the Creator and say, You have made me this way but I want to go this way. There are some things that are right and some things that are wrong. He says here, this sexual immorality that's among you is of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. The culture in Corinth was extremely sexually promiscuous. It was explained and quoted in some of the extra-biblical literature of Corinth. They statement that was quoted, mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for daily care of the body, but wives to bear us legitimate children. 
This was the idea in the mindset of the, of the society. Men had multiple women to meet various needs in their lives. And those Corinthians that were saved out of this culture had trouble leaving that in the past. They had trouble getting over their past because many of them had come out of this and had practiced this. And now they were coming into the church and they were bringing a lot of this immorality with them. They had trouble leaving this lifestyle behind. But this, this was the kind of sexual immorality that even the pagans didn't tolerate. Even without being told, there are some things that we know are wrong. Some things we know are right and some things we know are wrong. The pagans did not have the law of God. They didn't have the scriptures. They just knew this was wrong. They didn't tolerate this. But it was being tolerated in the church. And someone said to me today, that surely doesn't go on today. Well, no, they weren't gathering together and and doing this together. But it was going on among the people in in their midst. And the, the members who weren't necessarily involved directly in this act of sexual immorality, they were tolerating it. Not only tolerating it, they were arrogantly claiming that it was good and it was right. says, for a man has his father's wife. This probably makes the, the list of things that somebody probably shouldn't have to tell you that are wrong. I mean, right? I mean, there's some things that you just don't need anybody to tell you. This was not his mother. This was his stepmother. That's the why it says his father's wife. If it would have been his mother, they would have said mother. But this probably is something that you shouldn't have to be told, but probably, but, but just in case, God makes it abundantly clear and explicitly gives a command in Leviticus 18.8 where he says that you are not to uncover your father's nakedness, meaning that the father's wife belongs to him and he belongs to his wife. You're going to see that in the days to come, in the weeks to come in the book of 1 Corinthians. While sex itself is not dirty or wrong, there are certain sexual practices that are. And we can't be afraid to say this. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do, Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Dr. Albert Moeller from Southern Seminary uh, is quoted to say this, Adultery, fornication, homosexuality, bestiality, incest, prostitution, rape, pedophilia, and all other forms of sexual deviance and perversity are expressly forbidden by the Bible. We we can't be afraid to to say this, to stand on this. We can't be afraid to to know this in our lives and, and to say, God, help me not to cross these boundaries. There are some things that are right and some things that are wrong. Particularly when it comes to the issue of sex. Sex is intended to be between a man and a woman in the context of marriage. No perversion of that. No no altering of that. You can't take away marriage. You can't take away one of the genders and add add a different gender. God says man and a woman 
in the context of marriage. We see this in Adam and Eve from the very beginning where he he gives them to one another and he says the two shall become one flesh. They are to leave and to cleave to one another. So what should the church's position be? Well, recently, Louis Giglio who is a pastor in the Atlanta area. He is one of the leaders of the Passion Movement, which is a, a, a worship movement for college-age students. It's been going for years. They, they host annual uh, or, or regular events where they have concerts. It's, it's not just a concert, but it's a worship event. Louis Giglio, because of his stance to end slavery, and yes, there's still slavery, human trafficking that exists in our world, was asked by the president to pray at the inauguration. Well, very soon after this, within a day, there was a liberal group that dug back through the sermons that Louis Giglio had preached and found 15 years ago where he had preached a sermon from, from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 and 10, where he said that no sexually immoral and all those others will inherit the kingdom of God. And he called on them to repent. Well, they saw this as he was anti-gay or anti-homosexual. And so they caused a large stink, and within just a matter of hours, either Giglio had the invitation to pray at the inauguration rescinded, or he withdrew his name himself. We don't know, but the White House quickly began to apologize for selecting such a man. They didn't know his position when they hired him or when they asked him to pray, which, by the way, Based on that position, then this would rule out every other Christian leader in the history of praying at inaugurations. This would rule out Billy Graham. Billy Graham could not pray at an inauguration because he also takes the same stance. Not just Christianity, but all Orthodox Judaism. Muslim imams could not pray at the inauguration. So what does this mean for us? Are, are we to look at the culture and look at what happens with Louis Giglio and the White House and, and, and what the, the LGBT community says? And should we, should we compromise? Should we back up? Should we change our position? Should we do all of this so that we might be better received in the 21st century? Well, Paul says no. Paul gives them two things that they are to do. The first of which he says you should be mourning over your sin. You should not be looking across the room. This is what what shocked him. He was not so shocked by the fact that this was going on as much as he was at the response of the people. That the people were not only tolerating it, but they were celebrating it. They were prideful, even boastfully tolerant of it. Which brings me to a question. How do we often justify immorality in the church. You say, well, that doesn't go on, does it? Absolutely. The question was posed to me this morning, were they more evil than we are today? No. The human heart goes where the human heart goes when it is broken and affected by sin. It runs away from grace. It runs away from from God. It goes into all sorts of evil and immorality. It exchanges the creator for the creation. So how do we often justify immorality in the church? Well, we do things like we, we stand on Christian freedom. And we say, well, I've been saved by grace, so therefore I can do whatever I want to do, and God's obligated to forgive me. Maybe it's not us that's 
participating in the sexually immoral act or some other immoral act, but it's someone in our midst and we say, who are we to judge? Because they're a Christian. God will forgive them. We, we do things like Christian love. We tolerate this because we say, it's, it's not my place to judge. We make judge not lest you be judged our life verse. We plaster it on our walls and we say, this is the verse that I will live by. We numb ourselves to, to, to the issues of immorality by being entertained by it, by watching movies and television shows and listening to songs and, and all of this. And, and we, we think that, well, you know, I'm just watching it. I mean, you can't really watch anything anymore that doesn't have any, something in it. I'm not doing it myself. It's, it's just funny. Or it's just entertaining. It's just thrilling. And all the while, Christians are living vicariously through someone else's sin, thinking they are not sinning, but in the midst, they are sinning themselves. Jesus said that even if we look with lust in our eyes, we've committed adultery. We convince ourselves that as long as we're just watching and not actually doing it, then we're okay. We listen to it in the lyrics of our favorite songs. Meanwhile, many of those songs that many of you are listening to, you would be embarrassed if your grandmother sat down and listened to it with you. If the words were actually clear and heard. And many of you have said things like, well, I don't, you know, I don't pay attention to the words. I just really like the, the, the feel of the music. The reality is those words are sinking in. The reality is we should have nothing to do with those things that are perversion of what God meant for good. MacArthur said this, a church that does not mourn over sin, especially sin within its own fellowship, is on the edge of spiritual disaster. When we cease, listen, when we cease to be shocked by sin, we lose a strong defense against it. Paul says, you're arrogant. You're, you're watching this go on and you are arrogantly approving it. Should you not rather mourn? Need we be reminded that it is the very act of sin itself that sent Jesus to the cross? It is the murder weapon. And we're content to play with it. Paul says you should be mourning over your sin. But secondly, he gives a more practical step for them to to participate in, and it is excommunication. Now, church discipline and excommunication is not practiced today like it has been in years past. Verse 2, he says, let him who has done this be removed from among you. It's not enough just to mourn over the sin or to agree that the sin is wrong. Notice that Paul doesn't simply pronounce judgment on the sin. But in verse 3, on the one who did such a thing. You see that? It's not just saying, this is wrong and we will stand against this. It's not enough. Instead, what we must do, what we're called to do, what we can do and know that we are doing the will of Christ is to exercise church discipline. It's to go to a brother or a sister who is involved in this and walk through the process of discipline for their own good and for God's glory. It's laid out for us in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 18, when it says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. 
This is where it should be most of the time. If we're living in such close community with one another, if we are in small groups like we're supposed to be, like we're going to push you to be this year, if you're in the context of doing life with one another, being a discipler and having a discipler over you, then you should never get to the point of having to be excommunicated. There should always be someone that has the permission to come into your life and say to you, I'm concerned about you here. What you're doing is wrong. It's not wrong because I think it's wrong. It's wrong because God's Word says it's wrong. And I love you enough to tell you, and I'm asking you to repent and to trust Christ. Now, if he listens, it says, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. So the process would be if you go to a brother, he doesn't listen to you. Or if you go to a sister and she doesn't listen to you, she does not repent, she is continuing persistently in this sin, then you're to go and gather two or three others. This is why these Sunday school classes and small groups are so important. Because we need one another. We need to be in the context of having people around us that can call us on the carpet. And we would go and we would gather two or three others and go back to this person and say, look, I came to you before by myself, but now we're coming to you as a whole because we love you enough to call you back from this. This is dangerous for you. It is dangerous for the church. It is damaging to the reputation of God in our city. Repent and trust Christ. If they won't listen to you at that point, then tell it to the church. If they instill at that point, when we stand before, I listened in preparation for this sermon, I listened to John Piper at least a decade ago, stand in his pulpit in, in Minnesota where Bethlehem Baptist Church is, stood in his pulpit and preached this very passage and named a man in the congregation by name because they had went through this process. And they were publicly walking through this process of excommunicating him from their body. And you know what I was thankful for? was thankful that I can preach this sermon without having to be in that position. But I'm also aware that there is sin going on in this fellowship that I don't know about. That I will never know about. That you're hoping no one ever knows about. Many people think that this is harsh and cruel It's unloving to do something like this. How could we ever do that? How could we ever call someone out by name? But this is the most loving thing that we could ever do. The unloving thing would be to know this man is sinning and making a wreck of his life, but simply to turn a blind eye to it, to say with our actions, we support what you're doing. It's good. We like it. Christian freedom, it's grace. Nothing the blood of Christ can't cover. Oh, that's true. But if a person is counting on that that grace and that blood of Christ, but they are unrepentant and unchanged in their heart, they have never received the grace of God. They are lost in their sin, and they are in danger of spending eternity in hell. To say with our lives that God's holiness is not that big a deal. That's what we're doing if we refuse to discipline. How could we ever preach with any authority after that? How could we call anyone to repent with any conviction at all? How could I stand in this pulpit and say to you, 
turn from your sin and trust Christ if we know within this congregation there is sin going on and we are turning a blind eye to it. Instead, he says, you are to deliver this man to Satan. You're to deliver this man to Satan. When, when, a, when a church practices excommunication, they are delivering that person back to the realm of Satan. This, what we're doing here today, in the context of the gathered community of Christ, when you enter into rooms and, and you go into small group with other believers, you are, you are not in the realm of Satan anymore. You are in the realm of the church. Gordon Fee says it this way, in contrast to the gathered community of believers who experience the spirit and power of the Lord Jesus in edifying gifts and loving concern for one another, this man is to be put back out into the world where Satan and his principalities and powers still hold sway over people's lives to destroy them. You say, well, that sounds absolutely awful. How could we ever do that? It is awful. It's intended to be awful. But we should remember that God himself handed Job over to Satan. When, when Satan came before God and said, yeah, but if you'll let me, and you've let me have my way with him, he will curse you to your face. God said, touch him, touch all that he has, but don't take his life. God handed Job over to Satan. It should remind us that the devil is not free. The devil is God's devil. And when we have a brother or a sister, even a so-called brother or sister, who is unrepentant and persistent in sin, and we walk through this stage hoping we never have to get there, but if we do, and we hand them back over to Satan, we must trust and understand that we are doing the work of God, handing them over, and God will have his way in them through the devil. What's at stake? This is where I'll end today. What's at stake? Verse 5. The man's spirit is at stake. Paul says you do this. You hand him over to the devil, to Satan, for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. He's not being handed over to Satan for complete and utter and eternal destruction. Let's don't forget that this is the day of grace. But instead, that man or that woman is being handed over to the realm of Satan so that he or she might be saved. I'm going to end with a series of questions. This is the first of these three points I want to make real quick. And I want to ask a question at the end of each of these points. And this is how I want us to end. I want these questions to, to in some ways, haunt you today. To ring in your consciousness. And I want us as a faith family to ask these honestly and seriously. The first is this. If what's at stake is the man's spirit and we're handing him over for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord, then do we love one another enough to temporarily hurt one another in order that we might be permanently saved? Do we love one another enough to temporarily hurt one another in order that we might be permanently saved? Or do we in that moment, and this is not one of the questions, this is just a follow-up, or, or do we in that moment love our own acceptance and our, love our own feeling more than we care about the person's soul? 
Because that's what's really at stake. If a, if a parent refuses to discipline their child, it's, it's not the child that they're loving, it's themselves. They don't want the child to think bad of them. They don't, they, don't, they don't want to be that way to their child. They want the, church, the child to love them. And so they're loving themselves and hating their child. That's what the Bible says. Do we love one another enough to temporarily hurt one another in order that we might be permanently saved? Second point, what's at stake? The testimony of Christ among the pagans. That's the point when he says, this sexual immorality that is going on in your midst is of a kind that even the pagans don't tolerate. Put yourself, let's, let's just, get a, just step back from this for a second. We look at this book sometimes as if this is just a book of stories. Do you understand that this was real? That this is historical? That these were people? This was an actual church? This was really going on? What do you think the city around them was thinking? We, their God? Why would we need their God? They're worse than we are. We don't do that. The testimony of Christ among the pagans is at stake. This is the second question I want to haunt you today. Do we care about the glory of Christ in the eyes of the people of our city enough to hold one another accountable to live holy lives? Do we care about the glory of Christ in the eyes of the people of our city of Greenville and Spartanburg and Reedville and Greer and Duncan and Woodruff? Do we care what they think when we draw a five-mile radius around this place like we did on Wednesday night and those 28,000 people that live within five miles of this place, do we care what they think, not about us, but about Christ? Do we care enough to hold one another accountable to live holy lives? The third thing that's at stake is the purity of the whole lump. Purity of the whole lump. And let me go one verse further than I read to verse 6. In verse 6 he says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Here's what happens. If, if we don't deal with sin in our midst, if we don't hold one another accountable, caring for the glory of Christ among our city and among us, then what happens is you say, well, well it's, it's them, but... You know, it's not me. Before long, we lose our being appalled at that. And we become a little more comfortable with it. And possibly to the point where we ourselves are participating in it. There are people right now sitting in a congregation that if there's open sin in the midst, all it takes is for them to look at someone who is practicing sexual immorality and see the church do nothing about it and say, well, It must not be that bad. Before we know it, it impacts the entire lump. Third question. Do we love the bridegroom with a singular devotion that motivates us to strive for purity in the church? Do we love the bridegroom with a singular devotion that motivates us to strive for purity in the church? What you've probably seen in this sermon is that this sermon is less really about the act of sex 
and more about the response of the church to the sexual immorality. Church, don't miss it. Before we can point our fingers and condemn others, what we must do is we must look at inward. Is there, is there immorality in your life? whether it be sexual or, or in some other arena that you are simply ignoring and letting go. You're trampling all over the holiness and the grace of God and saying to a world that's watching, it may not be this world, you may have everyone in here fooled, but you're saying to the ones who actually do know, this thing's not real. It doesn't really have a real hold on my life. It's not that important to me. What's most valuable to me, what my God is, is this. Church, you individually, what I want to call us to today is repentance. I want to call all of us, whether it's sexual immorality or whether it's immorality of another kind, to not argue with God, not to justify it, not to tolerate it in the name of Christian love, not to stand down in, in Christian freedom and say the grace of God covers this, but instead to say this is ugly and it is evil and it has no place in my life if I belong to Christ. Would you turn from that sin today? In just a minute, Ethan's going to come and he's going to lead us in a time of reflection and response. And I'm going I'm to open this up. This altar will be open at the front here today. You may want to come and kneel and, and just pray to God about something. God, forgive me. Help, me. help me to have strength and victory over this in Christ. You will never have victory over this area in your life if not through Christ. Hear me on that. The answer is not for you to try harder. The answer is for you to repent and trust him. But I'm going to open this up. You may want to come and pray. You may want to sit right where you are. Ethan may instruct you to stand, and you say, I don't need to stand. I just need to sit right where I am, and I just need to pray. I need to turn from this sin. I need need to trust Christ. And then beyond that, you may need help to walk through this. And I'm going to ask you to do something that's going to be very hard for you. I'm going to ask you to open yourself up to someone else. If you need someone to help you through something like this, and we have people that we can partner you with, that will pray with you regularly, that will discuss the Bible with you regularly, that will help you regularly to be able to learn to walk and follow after Christ. There will be someone that you can call on and say, hey, I'm I'm just struggling today. Would you pray with me? And if that's you and you want to open yourself up to someone, I'll be sitting right here on the front today. When Ethan directs us to stand and sing, you may want to come to me and say, look, I just need that. And we'll walk through a process. Maybe me. Or I may connect you with another believer. But if you're willing and if you really want to repent and turn from your sin, then you may need some help. Today you may be here and this may be the church that you say, this is the church that God would have me to join. And today we invite you to come. If you've not been through the membership class, we'll have another one coming up soon, and we'll ask you to go through that so that you know coming in what you're getting into. Today you may need to be saved. Whatever the case may be, whatever God leads you to today, say yes, but let's not trample the grace of God any longer. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus,
God, thank you so much for your grace in our lives. God, I pray for people in this room, God, who are struggling with guilt and shame of maybe past sins, sexual or otherwise. God, they're struggling to get over that. God, today I pray, Lord, that they would trust you, trust you to forgive them. 1 John 1, 9 says that if we will confess our sins to you, then you will be faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Today, God, I pray, Lord, that you would set some people free from past guilt that they are no longer participating in. God, I also know that in this room today, there are people who are ensnared and trapped by all sorts of sins, many of them sexual, many of them looking at things that they have no business looking at, many of them pursuing relationships and people that are not theirs to pursue. God, today, the last thing I want to do is to heap shame on them. God, I pray today that you would wash over their lives with the forgiveness that comes through the cross of Christ. God, today, I pray, Lord, that you would have your way. Thank you, God, for preaching through me. God, I pray your word would stand. God, that it would change us for our good and for your glory. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. As God leads, let's respond to him. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.